I'm Carrie Adams, and you're listening to Carrie's Connoisseurs coming to you from Solid Gold Podcasts. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, and all the people who make it happen in the liquor and luxury industries from around the world. Well, morning, everybody. It's another it's another edition of Carrie's Connoisseurs, and today we've got Emile Joubert in the studio with me. He's not in the studio. The two of us are weathering the wonders and vagaries of what is this thing? Riverside, Callum. It's like a Zoom thing that we do. Morning, Emil. Good morning, Carrie. So lovely to having seen you in Joburg the other day. But we I couldn't know. do it. Committee, we couldn't do it back there on the lawns. Well, the, I know. Oh. Fair lawns. Well, you're looking very French this morning. Is it cold in Cape Town? It is bracing. And the rain has abated, but being okay. um, a wine madame, you will immediately realize that this weather has brought the v- vines into a state of ideal dormancy, yep. um, which the vineyards just need, and so we're getting pruning. I actually froze my hands off yesterday trying to prune a couple of vineyards. Oh, Robinson. okay. But this, yeah. is, this, is, this, is, this is to me, you know, whenever we talk, we, um, we show the wine industry, it's always these glamorous summertime shots with Verdun green vineyards and sunshine and... and mountains, and, you know, that manor kind of houses, stuff. yeah. That kind beautiful. of stuff, you know, and we like that. It's good postcard material. But there's just something so evocative and enchanting about a vin- vineyard in winter that is very dramatic and moody. And um, and that's where the next season's quality comes from, you know. So um, it's well, that's why people, people like you and me, that's why we're in the wine industry because it's really those vineyards that we love. I adore those vineyards. I could set up a tent, and I don't do camping, but I could set up a tent in a vineyard <laughs> and stay there forever. Yeah. So what did you no, prune yesterday? Did you prune at the Vetshof? Yeah, uh, some um, some some Chardonnays. Um, I was just out there for my <clears throat> monthly visit. And which, where I drove you out one day, I remember correctly. Yes, and visiting, I visiting the the the, the Vet family, and as a media consultant who has to market wine and write about it and communicate it on behalf of my clients in the outside world, I always try and, and kind of get my hands dirty, because if you start if you prune a little bit in the vineyards and you're involved at the harvest or you you rack a couple of barrels. You kind of get to know what you're talking about. And um, I enjoy doing that because it's fascinating. Well, it's, it's my. It's quite it's important my... as well. If you're going to be writing, it's quite important to know, <laughs> to know what you're talking about. So yeah, let's also, just. Let, also, to get the atmosphere. I, we'll, we'll go again there. Let's just tell everybody why I'm talking to you. Emile isn't just a South African who looks like a Frenchman. He doesn't just talk shit about wine in silly tabloids. Neil actually is a very interesting person in his own right. And before we're getting on to Devetsov, which is why I contacted you in the first place for an interview, I want you to tell my listeners and viewers about you. You own a media company at the moment, a PR company, and you've been involved with the Devets for a very, very long time. But let's just talk about you. Born in Cape Town, a 60s baby like me, um... Did you do all the stuff? Sex, drugs, rock and roll? Tell us. What have you done? Well, you carry your 60 much better than I do, Carrie. <laughs> <Which? Yeah, so. laughs> 
I was um, four years born in Cape Town um, to parents who have always been journalists. My dad worked for Die Burger newspaper all his life. Um, that's the Afrikaans daily paper in Cape Town. Die Burger. That's correct. And um, at the age of about six, we were living outside of Cape Town in the northern suburbs of Belleville, also known as the Boerewors Gordijn. <laughs> I'm going to say, and you even admit to living in Belleville. Okay, I'm proud of you. Yeah, I'm proud. <laughs> there I was, going about my way. My dad was driving into Cape Town to work at the Burger newspaper, and my mom was a, was a homekeeper, and I just started school, and I was growing up as a in a normal Afrikaans boy in the Boerewoordschotay. And then what happened in um, sub-A, 1970, I was hauled out of class and told to go and sit in the English class because news had come that my, my father had, was going to be transferred to London. Oh, what a in gorgeous surprise. Days, you remember those days, Carrie, all the media houses, South African media mm. houses, had offices in London. The yeah, Star Group, um, the SABC, uh, the Afrikaans newspapers, they all had offices and the, their families lived in London. So I was plucked out of my, my Belleville roots mm-hmm. as a six-year-old and dumped in swinging 70s London. Beginning you see, that's why I loved you. I never knew that. But <laughs> that's why you're such a... That's why you're so switched on. So we were living close to the King's Road in Kensington. And I couldn't speak a word of English. And I had to take my bus to St. Mary Abbott's Primary School. <laughs> of Church Road in Kensington, which to this day, you can drop me down anywhere in London, I will find St. Mary Abbott's Church Road. I was then primary school, and it's next to a, a church it's a Mary, called St. Mary Abbott's. And that's, Strange that. It's an ancient church, and that was the church where Mick Jagger and Bianca Jagger got married. <laughs> okay, you see, full of useless information. <laughs> So any, in any event, and um, then we lived in London, which for I mean, formative years. I lived there for four years between the ages of six and ten. Um, and then obviously I, I, I became, became a little pom, um, running a, a little pom, listening to pop music and becoming, I was an English kid, basically, because of those times. So cute. Despite being an Afrikaans family, my parents weren't going to force me to speak Afrikaans at home and so forth, because I, I had to get through school and, and this kind of thing. And um, it was just a great, great formative years. Um, came back to South Africa at the age of 10, lived in Seapoint, um, which was just fantastic. Having spent four years in, in, in the UK and suddenly living close to the beach, I spent mm. my days going to school and then... Um, and I suppose, I suppose that the weather in Cape Town seemed perfectly subliminal after London. Yeah, well, we all know it, that Cape Town's got shocking weather, it, but it's, it's after three, London, it's great. It, it's, three, it's, just, it's just a total different world. Um, I went to school there, and um, high school, I, um, then final two years, I went to Paul Ruiz to play rugby here in Stellenbosch. Um, and Paul Ruiz is a school that's produced more winemakers than any other school in the world, I think. I mean, 
And, and I think that's a, when the joy is about working. With Paul Riss. Yeah, Paul Riss is... Paul Riss is the sort of... It's the sort of incubation tank for winemakers. That's what it is. It seems to be. You know, I spent two, uh, two years at Paul Riss. But, but we want to get to the... To, to the yeah, Paul Riss I studied at a school there. And then after the army, I spent a year bumming around Europe. I went to university... <laughs> and studied the BA, changed the world, it was the 80s, I wanted to get involved in politics. Uh, Did you become a communist? Just to the left of communist, you know, larger <laughs> things like like Nisas or those kind of things. But, you know, I was like an 80s student, normal average 80s student when I finished yeah, the BA Yeah, me degree. too, we all were, it was great, it was great fun. When I finished the BA degree, you got a citrus degree and you think, well, what the hell can you do with it? But I'd always lived in the house where in those days there were typewriters clanging as my mom and my dad were writing their reports over the weekend and writing, and I'd written some stuff as a kid, and there I studied journalism. Uh, went to the States, I worked as a freelance journalist for a year, and I came back uh, to South Africa and I worked for De Bielt up in Johannesburg and also for the Bergen in Cape Town, mainly in arts and entertainment. I'm crazy about books, movies, plays, yes. art, yes, jazz, me too. music, that kind of stuff. Mm. But then I decided when I was about 30, I said, it's in the old time to grow up now. You cannot write about... <laughs> Um, Robert De Niro films as much as you like it or Chet Baker records for the rest of your <laughs> life and the other parts of journalism didn't interest me at all like politics and so forth so I went um, I went to work for a public relations company called De Kock and Kirchhoff a very renowned public relations company at the time I remember I know De yeah. Kock and Kirchhoff very yeah. well and um, they had we did public relations uh, for all kinds of corporates, banks and fund managers and buildings and IT had just started rolling out. And but we had one or two wine clients um, in the old Stellenbosch Farmers Winery setup. And when I was put to work on these accounts, I kind of said to myself, you know, this is something I can do. This is something I want to do. I wouldn't say at that time, in the in the in the mid nineties, I I was a wine collector or a big wine taster or anything like that. But I felt it was familiar terrain, because my parents, you know, South Africa's wine consumption is seven liters per person per year. But for it's journalists, not an awful lot, is it? Not, not. But for journalists, it's about thirty-seven liters per person. I got to say, we sort of. We sort of push up that average a teensy bit, I think, and then I'm sure I drink more than seven litres of wine a year. And my parents have always loved wine. Um, from They were very young when we were kids, and they you know, drank Lieberstein back home here in South Africa, and Paul Pelet <laughs> and so forth. Always just loved wine. But Lieberstein, Lieberstein, let's be honest, is a bit like Blue Nun, really, isn't it? Yeah, look, it was it's all we had at the time, or white wise in South mm. Africa, basically. Mm. And then they, when they got there, when they got to London, um, they'd continue their love of wine and would buy the plonk from the local stores. But this plonk mm. came from France and from Italy and Greece and Bulgaria and Germany and Austria and Australia. And I was really interested as a kid in um, looking at the labels. 
and thinking that this one product of wine is made in so many different countries and therefore it must surely taste different. So even as a youngster, I would take sips of my dad's two, one or two pounds um, Australian Chardonnay or the Blue Nun or the 90p wrestling. Or the scrapings of the floor in Greece. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, it kind of, and I would go to, to the Atlas when I saw a bottle of wine, a label, I'd, 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 I'd wash off the label and dry it. Put in the central heating bars in this world to dry it. Yes. Then look at the place, and if my dad could afford a burgundy, <laughs> AOC burgundy, now I'd, I'd, I'd look at Bone or Burgundy France and go to my atlas, my school atlas, at the age of eight or nine, and look at the place. So I've always been interested in having an interest in geography and different cultures and countries and so forth. I was, I was from an early age interested mm. that wine is made in, in so many different parts of the world. And together with that wine, you don't only get a drink, you get a cultural expression. It represents a specific culture. And that fascinated me. Mm. And so um, going back to when I, when I began working in public relations and um, on, on the wine accounts, I kind of got really keen onto it. Then I started reading up more about wine, different part of the world. And when I left that company, I decided, well, I'm going to do public relations, marketing, communications. I'm going to do it on a subject that I, I really enjoy and um, I think I know a bit about and I want to continue learning about. And that is wine. So that's what I've been doing now, Carrie, for about 25 years. I've been I know, and, and you do it extremely well. And I learnt, I met you um, through our common love for the Devet family. And I think it was at, I don't know, maybe we tasted together somewhere before that. I was trying to remember where I first met you, Emil. Where did I? I don't know, but I think I had to come and pick you up in Three Anchor Bay one day and drive you through to Devet's off. And. <laughs> Two and a half hours in the car, one um, <laughs> begins to know each other. But no, I think it's conversation. I think you're, you're a, and um, don't mind me saying so, but you're a prime example of what I love about wine is the wine people. Oh, like I know, I also wine, love it. Like every wine, a person who represents wine or talks about wine has a totally different personality, has a different voice. Is normally interesting, and that also gives me great satisfaction in being involved. In I agree with you. I have a I have a similar fascination that we can talk about. That I wrote an article about once. I'm completely fascinated by permutations and how there can be ten Brazilian permutations on the same theme. It's like Paganini's variations on a theme, but. You've got two eyes and a nose and a mouth, as have I and everybody else. And we all look completely different. And wine all comes from a vine, and it all gets planted in soil. Soils might be different, but it's those permutations that make it all so incredibly different. So my fascination is similar to yours, not quite as geographical, because I hated geography at school. Funnily enough, I love it now, and I still do refer to a real live hard copy atlas. Because I don't know about you, 
But when I go on my phone, I can't see. I can't see the whole thing in context. So I still open my book. So the geography of it has become much more important. And of course, as we all studied wine and, and got a little bit further into it, um, we had to get into geography and topography and terroir, as they love to call it. And that brings me to to De Wetzhoff. How did you how did you jump into bed with the Devets? They're just such a wonderful they are like a first growth family in South Africa, aren't they? The relationship with the with Dani Devet is is quite a quite an interesting one. Um, my parents being journalists and loving wine had always had many wine making friends. Um, I remember when I was a kid, we'd go with them to visit Nico Meiberg at Meerlist, Janni yeah. Kambrecht at Rusten Freire, Janni Momberg, still Jan Beck, the one who owned Nietlingshof. So we, we had many friends in the wine industry. And Hempies de Toy. Hempies, I still went to ask Hempies mm. if he could help me with a job before I back, I back, back to Europe in the 80s. So, and, and my parents were very personable people and journalists, so they, you know, go and attend these parties and visit people on wine farms and just part of their, 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 their broad church of friends. Um, now, the Devets, you'll find this interesting. It's because in 1981, Jan Boerland could see her, the icon of the wine industry, um, from mm-hmm. just had left Kanonkop. And he'd taken a year off to go and work in Burgundy because he really now wanted to find out what... Well, Pinot Noir runs through his veins, doesn't it? Yeah, and Chardonnay. And, he wanted and Chardonnay, find, yeah. He wanted to find out the, the world terroir, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, special place. And that road could only lead him to one place, and that's Burgundy. So Jan plucked up his family went to Bone and worked for Joseph Drouin, which is mm. one of the big negotiants and, and vineyard owners in right in the middle of Bone. Anyway, so this is 1981. Now, you will remember, although you were only a sprightly 20-something-year-old at the time, <laughs> that in 1980, we only had 35 hectares of Chardonnay in South Africa. Is that so? I was living in London then, so I wouldn't okay. have known and I wouldn't have cared. <laughs> you wouldn't have cared. But yeah, I, I was... <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> I, expected a bit I wasn't worrying about Chardonnay when I was 25. Like that. <laughs> the, at that time, the, the wine community, parts of the wine community in South Africa said, guys, to take the next step into the wine world, we have to get varieties like... Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Franc, um, Merlot into South Africa. Because at that time, they were the, the whole wine lands were only planted with um, um, Chenin, Chenin, and Sinso. And Sinso, yeah. But nothing wrong with that. But if you want to go and sell a wine internationally, the chances of going mm. eating an American market or European market with, with Panamino or, or Shannon is not going to happen. <laughs> but you've got no Chardonnay, you've got no Sauvignon Blanc. 
We've got no Merlot. We've got no Cabernet Franc. Let's get some new material into South Africa. But to yeah. plant a new grape variety in South Africa, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm looking for a comparison to how difficult it was at the time. But basically, it would take you 20 years to introduce a new variety into South Africa due to mm. the um, uh, regulations that were in place. So a couple of Chardonnay lovers and acolytes, like Dani De Vet said, I'm going to bring in Chardonnay illegally into South Africa. I was going to say, there was sort of, it was contraband, wasn't it? It was yeah. like, yeah. it was like we trying to buy a penthouse it. magazine or something. Yeah, we're going to smuggle it into South Africa. Hmm. And we're going to plant it and see how well it does in our vineyards. Okay, so Dani De Vet is one of them. So he called up his, 1981, he called up his friend, Jan Boerland, could see her in Burgundy, and said, Jan, I'm going to take the chance of planting some char good Chardonnay on the Vetsov. I want you to pick a vineyard in Burgundy and get two bunches of cuttings for me. In the winter, you take the cuttings, and if you can smuggle those back to South Africa, I can <laughs> propagate them and plant them on my farm, which I'm going to do. So Jan, loving this kind of stuff, obviously, because he also wanted to bring Chardonnay back to South Africa, but he still had a couple of months to go to finish out his term working as a winemaker. Druid. So Jan did find a vineyard. It's called the Clodemouche Vineyard in owned by Druid. I was going to say, which vineyard did they come from? Was it Clodemouche? Clodemouche, yeah. yeah and the, it's the first vineyard Druid bought was the Clodemouche. Um, so Jan selected the vineyards. He cut them off, got the cuttings, wrapped them, but now what he needed was a mule to take them back <laughs> to South Africa. Was it you? No, I, must think, I, was, I was in the army in 81. <laughs> no, but my father, who was a friend of Young and was a magazine editor at the time, had happened to swing by in Burgundy to say hello to his friend and as they were, he, was, he was leaving after a three-day jaunt, Jan said to my dad, man, just take this parcel back to South Africa <laughs> <laughs> and call Don't you love the Afrikaners? Yeah. You know, I just love just these stories. They were so, in, yeah, they were so naughty yeah. and they were just so take, progressive in their own funny way. Just take this bucky back and give it to Don. <laughs> so, of course, my dad liked this. He went now he's part of um, doing something clandestine and the wine was... Involved. Yes. So he Could be thrown those. into a Siberian salt mine for the next 10 years if he was yeah. caught. Well, he smuggled back those two packages of, of the vine cuttings, got them past customs, and gave them to Dani Devet. So our... And that those vines were planted on Devetsov, and the Batalia Chardonnay from Devetsov is still made from those very same vines... Wow. ...from the Clodin Mouche in Bone. But anyway, so that's that. That was ours. So we've have a deep connection with the Tibets. That's a gorgeous <laughs> story, Emil. I never knew yeah. that story. And um, but I, no, I mean, I was a kid at the time, and I just also always heard about Dani the vet in its revered terms, and drank some of his wines with my parents. But I only got to meet Dani, I think, at the Veritas Wine Awards in about 1995. He was chairman at the time. And I was there with my mom, who was obviously a good friend of his, and we started talking. 
And, you know, you could immediately, Donnie DeVette and I share a birthday as well with the same day. But I, I could immediately, I was a bit, bit skrukkerig of him at the time, you know, he was formidable. <laughs> he is quite formidable, I know. But there was an immense, you know, you could just pick up in some people. You can, there's this uh, a wisdom and, uh, and, and, and a restrained warmth. I think it was a formidable. Oh, I think, do you know, I think that Donnie DeVette is one of those people who's visited the planet many, 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 many times. An old soul. <laughs> He knows more than all of us put together. He studied overseas and did incredibly yeah. well. He's got this quiet confidence, and you just feel like if anything in your world went wrong, you could find Donnie DeVette and he could fix it. He's like Superman. He's just en enormously wise, and mm. um, him and Jan Boland could see are today my most... Uh, you know, the people I most look up to and I see as the mm. sages of South Africa. Two wonderful mentors, yeah. But I was unfortunate in that. And, and then um, as time went on, Donnie heard I was working in the PR game and Leska, his wife, who was running pretty much in charge of marketing and sales back in the 90s, um, who I bumped into a couple of times at events and so forth, always saying hi and say hi to your parents and how are you doing and what a what a. And then, then one day, in this very office I'm sitting in now, I think it was 2011. No, 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 before that, 29, 2009. I got a call from the Devetsov office um, to say, uh, <clears throat> Donnie would like to see you. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. I thought, yes. Put on an extra no. pair of underpants. <laughs> you know, it's like, because at that time I was, I was writing a bit about wine, um, as well, because I, I, I love to write. Um, so apart from my working in, in PR and marketing, I'd write wine columns for some of the Afrikaans newspapers. I thought, mm. oh, yes, like, what did I say now? What happened? <laughs> I drove up there and, and they started chatting to, to, to the, the, the whole family. And they, they asked me to start working for them, writing a couple of newsletters and a press release and so forth. And... Um, it's 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 evolved into a very satisfying relationship, which I I don't want even want to call it professional. Um, I'm like you know, really when I get there, I'm I'm hauled off into the winery. I must help them. They're going through tasting the blends for the limestone hill, so I must also be part of the team to taste and give my um, thoughts. I mean, I'm sure my thoughts don't count. It's me and the winemaker. I'm sure they do. Peter and the sons, Peter and Johan, but they want me to be part of it. So it gives me great joy and satisfaction um, to be, and that's how I've been involved with the vets. And I've got Well, it is, it's just, it is the warmest, comfiest, lovely space that you've created there with the vets. And I've been in your presence a few times with them. I am in awe of the Devet family. They've done an amazing amount for the South African wine industry. And again, I'll say one of the reasons that I contacted you is because I need everybody to know about the new Chardonnay, the new baby that's been put in the playpen. I was invited, guys, to a lunch by Emil two weeks ago in Johannesburg. We went to Fair Lawns, which was lovely, and it was a beautiful sunny but cold winter's day. And we had some lunch, which was delicious. Unfortunately, I didn't get to speak to you I was completely 
captured by Benny Bookworm, who I love to death. He works for wow. Devetsov as well. Uh, he's also been there longer than the Battalion. I know, he, but that's grew, what I love. He grew out of the soil. <laughs> I love that about the wine industry because there's this certain loyalty and, and warmth that, that pervades. But, but um, the reason for the lunch was is that in addition to the five, how many Chardonnays currently come out of Devetsov? I think it's five. Five, two unwooded ones and then three mm-hmm. wooded ones. Yes. Now tell everybody about what I term as village. It's like a little baby, new baby Chardonnay that you've put together. It's a whole new thing that once again, Donny DeVette has pioneered something new in the industry. Tell us. It's actually, actually, Johan's taken over now his eldest son. So Johan's pretty much a CEO. I have to say Donny because he's my hero. He's my, Johan is his son and he's gorgeous. We'll give him some credit. But is that they are all still being watched with an eagle eye. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. And and great support. The Vetsov they focused. I think a lot of the South African wine industry's challenges, I don't want to call it a problem, is that you have wineries in these states who try and make everything for everyone. You'll find Sauvignon Blanc, yep. Gaplasic, Chardonnay. Pinotage, Shiraz, K-Blend, Bordeaux Blend on one property. Brandy Port. <laughs> Devitz, Adani decided when he came back from Geisenheim um, after studying there in Germany, he told his dad, if you want me to take over, we're going to focus. And I was in Geisenheim and my professors told me that Robertson would be good for Chardonnay. And I love Chardonnay. I think it's the greatest white wine in the world. And I think that if South Africa can make good Chardonnay, it is good for the South African wine industry because the whole world knows of Chardonnay. If you're seen as a good Chardonnay producer, you're seen as a good wine producer. So Andevetsov in Robertson focused on Chardonnay. 200 hectares of vineyard, 80% of that being Chardonnay. Um, and they have got f- the five wines all reflect a different parcel, soil parcel from the vineyard, the specific vineyard. And as, as Johannes illustrated that day, there are two wines, both unwooded. I love unwooded Chardonnay. There are two wines unwooded, Bonvalon, Limestone Hill. Mm. Same grape, just different soils. More clay in the one, more chalk in the other. The one gets more sun after afternoon, the one gets less sun. The wines are totally different because they're two different sites and vineyards. Do you know, um, Emil, i interrupt you there for one minute. The first year, I think, that I joined solely at Norman Goodfellows, which is about 200 years ago, I think it was that year that Bonvalon received five stars in platter. Did it ever receive five stars in platter or got double mm. gold at Veritas or something very important, very smart? Well, and I think I... <laughs> I, I think I sold more Bonvalon than anybody on planet Earth. It was so it's delicious. Good, I love that. It's a very interesting unwitted Chardonnay. And that was coming after having been living in England where I drank all these sexy French Chardonnays. Mm. It's a very, it's, 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 it's a lovely wine and um, it was the first unwitted Chardonnay. The first, the first unwitted Chardonnay in South Africa. 
And it also got a top 100 uh, Wine Spectator Award in 2021. Now, you know, to get a top 100 in the world from the Wine Spectator with an unwanted yeah. South African child. And he's got, but anyway. And it's that, inexpensive. How much is it? How much is it? It's not expensive. It's about 100, 120, 130 around a bottle. Yeah, no, it's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Everyone should have some in their cellar. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted okay. you there. So, so, Carrie, let me take you. So, we, for, for, ever since I've been involved with the vessels, they've had the five Chardonnays. Three wooded ones, two unwooded, all from different vineyards. But now, um, Johan, like these youngsters do, he's only 40, so these youngsters do, always keep a door, <laughs> always keep a door open for something new, a new opportunity. And him and some of the other Robertson Chardonnay producers, um, predominantly Philip Jonker from Veltefrede, also a huge Chardonnay acolyte. Fab Chardonnay, yeah. And they've got a fantastic centre on the farm committed to Chardonnay, showing chalk and the soils and the production processes and so forth. It's like a little museum. But even Carrie, they kind of, Johan and um, Philip and a couple of other producers who all make unwooded Chardonnays, they, they were, after years of tasting and talking and so forth, they said, you know, we're sitting on something very special in, South Af in, in Robertson. Um, we have a unique soil type. It's got the highest limestone content, chalk content of any winemaking region in South Africa. Um, because, you know, limestone, the, the, the geeks will tell you this, but it creates balance in the wines <laughs> and ensures longevity. It does. You have to like, grow Chardonnay and limestone. You have to, I you mean, don't have a choice. Burgundy in France, Burgundy is an old seabed. Oyster shells, that's just bur mm. burgundy. That's why it is the home of Chardonnay. Robertson, mm. although being 90 kilometers from the ocean, was gazillions of years ago also covered with ocean. And they're still finding skeletons of ocean critters and skeletons of dead abalone divers, you know, in the soil. <laughs> okay, that's I did love in case we offend anybody. So there's a lot of fossilized stuff beneath those soils, which leads to a kind of a bright, flinty mineral expression in the unwanted I know. Chardonnays. You want to have a sip of that Chardonnay <laughs> and you want an oyster to go down your throat just yeah. straight afterwards, hey? And the likes of those wines are not found anywhere else in South Africa. It's a stylistic no. fingerprint, only in Robertson. So they said, why don't we, we create, us eight or nine unwitted Chardonnay producers, create one brand of Chardonnay that is sold or presented under our specific wineries labels. So the overriding term is called calcrete. Calcrete refers to the calcareous soils. Those are all those sea shells and 
fish bones and mm. stuff. I was telling you about it. People bones. Mm. So Calcrete is the overriding name. It's a style of Chardonnay, only from the Robertson area, made from those calcareous soils. Um, and that that wine is is then bottled under the label of the various producers. So yes, we had the other day we introduced you to the the Vetsov Calcrete. Unwitted. So are they all going to be called Calcrete? So when Philip Yonker makes one at Valtafer, yeah, it's going to be yeah, Philip yeah. or Valtafer so, Calcrete. Yeah, you will have. So it's like one. a village. It, it, it's, it's, look, it, we'll get to that. But I mean, it's like um, the village is more of a determination of quality, where Calcrete is an overriding blanket term. So you'll find a Bon Courage Calcrete, a Robertson, a, a Robertson, a Devetsov Calcrete. Okay. okay, so um, it's like a Pulini or like a Mercer. Yes, exactly. Or exactly. like a whatever. And, and so yes. it's, I think it's, 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 it's number one, it's, it's, it's the producers claiming something unique to them and offering the consumer a point of differentiation. It's like Chablis in France. Yeah. Uh, Chablis. Lots of people make Chablis. Mm. Yeah, you, you don't make Chardonnay. You make Chablis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't make French Chardonnay, you make Chablis. It's mostly unwooded, it's also very flinty. So it's not copying, mm. nobody can copy Chablis. But I think the, the long-term goal is to, to highlight something unique from the Robertson area and also to create a brand. So hopefully, perhaps in 20 years' time, when so- somebody's sitting at a sushi bar here on the waterfront and wants a glass of dry pleasant dry white wine they won't be asking for a unwitted chardonnay they'll say i wonder if they've got a calcrete from someone they'll be asking for calcrete so it could become a, a total brand you yeah. even forget that you'll even forget it's chardonnay it's like a sancerre a yeah for me you know you don't ask for a sancerre sauvignon blanc yeah you ask for a yeah that's it um so that's 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 the thought behind it and that was the wine we introduced you to the other day unwitted chardonnay made from um, a special vineyard with extremely high limestone calcareous soil content and putting something new onto the market because as much as I believe in providence, legacy, heritage and tradition, we are a new world wine country where innovation still has a role to play. And I think this idea is collaboration and a point of differentiation. And interesting, because I mean, with, you know, I talk to a lot of um, foreign wine writers when they're here, or foreign wine people, and you know, we've been telling a lot of the same story for a long time. It's a great, we've got great stories to tell in South Africa. The old vines, Shannon. I know, we shouldn't actually, I have a bit of a theory. We shouldn't actually be deemed a new world wine area. Because we're not that new anymore. I mean, 400 odd years old, that's not so new, really, is it? Look, it's not new, but I mean, nothing really happened until <laughs> 50 years ago. So, if nothing happened in my life for the first the 60 years, can I still identify as being 20? And the world recognizes us as a new world country. So, although, I mean, I think, I think we make, we make, 
of classic style Chardonnays and Cabernet Sauvignons and even Sauvignon Blancs are more in line with Europe than other so-called New World countries. Yeah, they are, because we were sort of set up by the Europeans, Mm. really. So we are much more old world. If you're going out into the world... They don't want to know about Willem Arden and Van der Stel and Jan No. <laughs> they, they don't we're, care. We're a, pretty, we're a pretty new old wine country. So anyway, the Colcrete wine, you taste it. It's lovely, fresh, inviting. Got like a oyster And again, oyster again, it's, it's every man's wine. It's affordable. Yeah. So I, everybody can have some. Exactly. And we, it's, mm? it's being rolled, rolled, rolled as we speak. And the other Robertson guys... Um, are following shortly, so hopefully by next year this time we've got a whole suite of um, concrete wines, and um, looking forward to that immensely. Well, I think that that was a brilliant innovation on the part of once again the Devets and yourself, who I know you collaborate hugely behind the scenes to steer them in the right direction. You do a brilliant job. I love that we've got people like you in the industry. It is time for us to have a catch-up over a... I'm trying to remember you. Didn't I get you some Saint Emilion once? Was it Saint... What did I buy for you? Where Angelus, no, what? <laughs> you asked me to order you some wine. Was Calon it Fijan? Oh, it was Gueux, yes. It's time for us to share a bottle of that. The so next that time story? I come to Cape Town, tell, tell me why, that story. Why I love that wine so much. And wow. I've been fortunate um, to have had the great Bordeaux's first growth and so forth. Me too. But Calon Seguir will always be my number one Bordeaux wine. Because my, when my dad was living in London, and he was, he was hanging around Fleet Street, remember? And those journalist wine consumption was 137 <laughs> yeah. litres per year. If you know the Poms, the old school journalists. Fleet Street, where the newspapers were. They had a wine bar called Alvino. Very famous wine bar. Yes. Remington Norman actually banished Albino for a while. Albino. Did he? Remington. In any event, Carrie, so when my dad now started getting interested in wine, but he was a a journalist, and as it goes, you don't have royally remunerated, but you have (laughs) other privileges. But now, my dad couldn't afford the first growth because in, in those days, a Margot or a Hot Brion was something like seven pounds a bottle or, or eight pounds a bottle, which is way it above. It was a whole month's heating bill, yeah. Way above his pay grade. But he bumped into a guy in Elvino, a journalist, of South, also a South African journalist, but he'd been working in London for years, called Roy McNabb. And this guy... Roy McNabb said to my dad, look, you and I can't afford top Bordeaux, but there's a third growth, Santa <laughs> Steph, called Calon Seguir. That wine is one sixth or seventh of the price of a first growth, but it's the quality is fantastic. And so my dad started putting pennies together and once a year, um, I'd get back from school at just after four o'clock in the UK. There was a knock on the door, and there was a, a gentleman standing there from a wine merchant in a yellow, oh. like a yellow coat that goes down to his knees. Yes, of course. 
and he'd have this wooden crate and on that mm-hmm. wooden crate is a heart which is the symbol of Cologne Seguir. Yes. You know the label, the heart? You're such and, a terrible romantic, Emil. And now the guy, and my, 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 my dad wouldn't be home yet because he'd have to work until six and go to the pub until nine. And so, <laughs> but, but my mom would collect the wine and put it down in the living room of our flat. And when my, my dad would arrive and that the, he would look at that new vintage that had just arrived mm. and just the, the aura the wine projected, the presence of that wine. And he'd, 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 he'd just take the, remove the screws of the lid and look mm. at those, br- those brand new bottles. With such love, yeah. And I mean, that just to me at that time, I thought it was the most precious thing um, in our house. And that is why till today, and I'm sitting in my office now, I have some bottles in the fridge. Have you? <laughs> so, so till today, Calon Seguir, because Gary, wine is about emotion. And of I always tell people who market their wines, I say you can have the best wine from the best vineyard. Your winemaker could have won you 17 IWC trophies a year, whatever. But if you don't market that wine and talk about it to, to, and, and evoke an emotion, you're missing a trick. People 100%. wines on emotion. People definitely do. And you know what? Absolutely. That's why people like you and me love the industry, because there are more of us kind of people in the wine industry. It's a terrible place. It's a, it's a most captive love. It's the most captive love, this wine industry. I always say you need to find somebody who looks at you the way I look at my delivery from Norman Goodfellows. <laughs> find somebody like that. Emil, thank you so much for talking to me. Is that it? I love I chatting to you. That's it. I'm sending you. I know you've got an appointment Gary, that you have to do. It's been a great I've got pleasure. another one too. Th- we can chat some more, darling. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much to you. And thanks for providing this platform. And... Um, we love you and your knowledge and respect and your natural way of appreciating Aww. wine while allowing us to learn from you. Oh, you know what? I need a hundred meals in my life. Have a fantastic week, darling. Somebody will send you how we find all of this stuff. As I said, I've got little angels that sit in the background here <laughs> in the studio and they make it all happen. I'll let you know <laughs> how it all happens. Lots of love and thank you very much. Thank you, Carrie. Great pleasure. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.